ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Not only are we a floor wax, we are a dessert topping. Um, I am can tell you, uh, coming uh, out of a lot of gloomy weather and gloomy stuff, uh, to have one of my favorite pick-me-ups, um, this side of an upside-down can of uh, miracle Whip when the cashier isn't looking. Um, none other than Chris Starwald. Chris, welcome back to The Remnant. Well, uh, I, I have to say, I have to say that I have been approaching Goldbergian levels of exhaustion uh, and uh, crisscrossing. And as I said in my dispatch column for Monday, I was like, well, the reason I'm exhausted and the reason I'm always constantly talking and going everywhere is because it's really important. Right, right, right. <laughs> Tell me it's really important. Um, so I, I hope that I can achieve a gold jacket level of rank punditry in this podcast. I will do, I will do my level best, sir. I will do my level best. I find that, uh, what is the Latin phrase? Res ipsa loquitur. If you find yourself having to buck yourself up by saying into the mirror, it's worth it because it's really important. <laughs> uh, it may not be important enough to require doing that, but how, how'd the book tour go? How's it going? I mean, we've had a really successful book. It's I, I'm, I am surprised at how many people like this book. Uh, I think uh, the reason is obvious, which is everybody knows that the media world uh, stinks on ice and is horrible. Uh, and I'll put it this way. The premise that our, uh, the premise that our news business is broken is not challenging to anyone, right? Everyone, right. everybody knows that. Uh, solutions, some people disagree with me, but uh, I am enormously gratified by the success of the book uh, and enormously gratified that the dispatch is part of my life because it gives me a good excuse at the end to get out of when people are like, but what about solutions, Chris? I'm like, oh, is, is, it, or, is it already 1230? I should go, dispatch, put it out there, it's good. This is how much we can tell that you are less of the hack that you claim you are quite often is you have mm. actually not given the title of your book yet. Mm. And not, I don't mean hacking a bad way. I could way, do the Tevi Troy. I could do the Tevi Troy. I could do the every 30 seconds to say the name of the book is broken news. Buy it anywhere. The name of the book is broken news. But yeah. Oh, I got to tell you, I was on um, CNN recently with uh, Jonathan Martin. Nice guy. Good reporter. Yada, yada. But Hamden Sydney College graduate. But my God, he makes Tevi Troy seem like what's Rob Long's old joke is like, how do you make an Episcopalian look at his shoes? Talk about money. Yeah. Like he like makes Tevi seem like he'd be embarrassed to try to ask you to even look at his book. He just mentions his book so much. It's like every third sentence, as we reported in our book, blah, 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 blah. It was pretty impressive. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a weird space. Um, and as you point out about, uh, I think, uh, wasps in general, uh, it's a challenging thing to, uh, be a hooker. Uh, I'm trying my best. I'm doing everything I can. I, I'm, looking at, I'm doing everything I can. Well, everyone knows I, I love Tevi Troy. I'm not making fun of him about this. I'm, I love Tevi I'm Troy. I'm making fun of him in a nice wasps. way. And like, this is something like you work for years on a book 
you put a lot of effort into it and then you have to go out and you have to try and sell it. And there's nothing oh. wrong with doing that. So. Oh no, I, I, I aspire to me be more Troyish uh, and less Starwaltian. Um, but speaking of Rob Long, uh, we talked about this in a little <laughs> detail in the green room as it were. Uh, uh, I guess I, I guess I knew this or should have expected it, but you are apparently a listener of Glop, this outside podcast that I've been doing for a long time with Rob Long and John Pedoritz. And you texted me Sunday morning <laughs> to complain about the higher. I did not complain. Didn't complain. Uh, to, to, to express uh, a modicum of shock uh, that the quotient of Japanese porn content was higher than one might expect for church going folk like yourself. I can find, I'm sure that I can find the actual text that I sent, which was here it is. If I had known that you were going to, ahem, go deep on pornography, comma, especially Japanese pornography with Rob Long, I would have listened sooner. So no one could say that that was a complaint. But I love Glob. Uh, I only got into Glob. I love, Rob Long is one of the funniest writers I have ever read. Yes, he is. Uh, his uh, back, of the, back of the book for National Review, back in the day, uh, Letters from Al, uh, The Long View, what, some of the funniest stuff ever. Uh, Pedoritz is national treasure, and of course you are you, and I'm, I've already used up all my compliments. Yes, we're do, we're done with here. Those, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I know, I know. I, mean, that's, that's, I, I, stand, I stand silent, but when I found Glop, it was so great because it is truly a conversation among friends, and you and Rob getting to talk to each other because John was going to the, ortho, the dentist or wherever he was going that day in an Uber was a surprising delight. Yeah, no, I, 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 it was weird because normally I am, um, and I, I think I mentioned, I don't know if it made it into the final cut because that, that podcast tends to be edited. Um, some episodes, <laughs> some episodes more than others. The episode we did about the game of cornhole. Oh boy. Which is a game with beanbags and, and that's all I'm saying. But like the, in the, our inability to, the problem was either we restrained ourselves from double entendre but knew where we were going and laughed about it and giggled like 12 year old boys about it. Or we went there and then giggled like 12 year old boys. About it. It, was, it was, I, bad, but. I, I have an, I have an almost 12 year old boy. Uh -huh. uh, and I have one boy who used to be 12. And when we found the cornhole has a national championship mm -hmm. and they televise it, uh, we have a catchphrase among us, among Starwalt men, which is uh, the only Professional sport brought to you by baked beans. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, we don't need to get deep in the weeds in this, but I, I, I should say that I have this long running joke, which I've made at several uh, AI speeches um, at World Forum about how prior to Yuval becoming a scholar at AI, he was um, one of the foremost Canadian porn stars. Um, <laughs> in the world, which I just think is like, so I don't know why Canadian porn is such a funny concept to me. It's sort of like they're mildly contradictory concepts, but it's, but it's, his, it's, it's his super studious look. It's That's the, right. it's the slightly crinkled uh, brow that makes that joke work. That's the other thing is like, so I found out only about six months ago that you've all of in, who's not only a handsome man, but a powerful man. Uh, his brother is an airline pilot. And the image of just like Yuval, but in like an airline pilot's outfit, I just think is endlessly entertaining for some reason. I don't know why, but uh, 
Well, I have to say, I'm on a lot of planes. And very often I see the pilot and I go, really? Are we doing this today? Yeah. Are you doing good? Am I doing good? Like, are, have we made good choices here? But if I saw Yuval Levin in an airline pilot uniform getting on a plane, I would say, we're going to be good from here. This is going to be fun. That's right. Just uh, as Edmund Burke said, lay down your ambitions and your tray tables. Um, I don't know, but all right. So, uh, last a night podcast about nothing. We're, yes. we're recording this on, um, Tuesday, um, mm -hmm. October four, uh, late last night after I got home from a long drive, uh, people started texting me about the, uh, Herschel Walker situation. Um, this guy. and, uh, why don't speaking of porn, no, uh, um, why don't I just sort of leave it to you to sort of lay out how, so to speak, how you see it. So as I, as I understand it, uh, Herschel Walker was accused by a woman of, uh, I guess the word is impregnating her, uh, and then paying for an abortion. Uh, his son seems to have not dissented from this point of view. Mm -hmm. Uh, and has denounced his father. Uh, the uh, National Republican Senatorial Committee and, interestingly, the uh, Mitch McConnell's, or the, the PAC associated with Mitch McConnell, both seem to be sticking with Herschel Walker. Um, Herschel Walker could still win. Mm -hmm. Um Herschel Walker is an appallingly bad candidate uh, on a slate of candidates across the country. Uh, J.D. Vance, uh, Mehmet Oz, uh, the weirdo in Arizona, uh, and Walker uh, specifically, who are just really expensive for Republicans, really foolish nominations for Republicans who, like, it's a good year for Republicans. As our colleague, um, the artist formerly known as Ala Pundit, whose name is Nick Nick Catagio, Catagio, as Nick Catagio pointed out, it's a still a good year for Republicans, sure. right? Uh, it's a midterm year, which is favorable to Republicans. That's true. Uh, the issue set favors Republicans. That stuff's all good. But man, when you look at the Senate, what a bunch of dummies these Republicans are. They didn't have to have Herschel Walker as their nominee. They could have had they could have had just some dude or some gal. They could have just had some person in a blue suit who would be ten points up on Raphael Warnock. When you look at uh, Brian Kemp's numbers over the terrible, very terrible Stacey Abrams, you see it. It's obvious this is a good Republican year. It's still a Republican state. Why did they have to have Herschel Walker? It's just nuts. It's just it makes no sense. It makes no sense using like earth logic and thinking like, <laughs> you know, like they should pick the candidate who has the best shot of winning and who's a reasonable Republican. Like all of that stuff make like, like you're right. It makes no sense according to those terms, but we know why this happened. You know, I mean, this is part of the grander, you know, why we can't have nice things kind of thing. Right. And um, I do want to say just you feel free to, I, I very, very much doubt you'll dissent, but uh, I do think it's just worth saying that it's always a tragedy when kids, for whatever reason, feel like they have to denounce their parents, totally. you know, and totally. um, 
the kid could be 100% right. He could be 50% right. He could be 0% right. It doesn't matter. The fact that you're in a situation where a son is essentially denouncing his father, that is prima facie evidence of a tragedy somewhere. And when the, Con- when the Conway's daughter had to call them out in public, like right. when you get to those, and I don't know what my children will eventually have to denounce me over, but I, I rue the day. No, I, uh, but no, I'm kidding. The, the harm that you see, you and I don't have to do what we do for a living, right? Um, it exposes us to a lot of stuff and it exposes our families to lots of stuff that, you know, it's not cool. Um, and we have to do that balancing test all the time. Like, is this worth it? Is it good? Um, but when you see somebody like that who runs, who, you know, no, don't run. Don't do that to your family. You've done enough to your family. Like, leave them alone. It, it's really saddening because anyone could have run. Anyone could beat Raphael Warnock. There's no, there, there is not a, there is not a uh, current or former, like Jack Kingston. Right. Would be 10 points up yeah. on Raphael Warnock. And it's just sad. So but one of the reasons I bring this up is that there was, in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, there was an anonymous Republican quote. Uh, Republican close to the Walker campaign. Oh boy. Saying in effect, this kid is really troubled. No one should listen to him. And if Walker loses, it's now all because of this, of his son. No. And, um, and the thing about it that, that first of all, like, I think it's gross on all sorts of levels. Right. And like the idea that Herschel Walker is, hasn't Dis- distancing himself from his son. Well, yeah. Or like, or sought out the person who gave this quote and said, don't be talking about how my son is troubled and, you know, like this, this is why it's automatically yeah. a tragedy, but also just on the merits, you know, the son says my dad was a terrible absentee father and it messed up the whole family. And then the response from, you know, Walker world is this kid's really messed up as a matter of logic. That's not a defense, right? You know, I mean, there was there was a Trump cabinet secretary who became embroiled in a scandal, and I mistakenly agreed to speak to him off the record. Um, and he was talking about his situation and how unfair the coverage was, and how so and so and so and so. And I said, "Do you think that you are the only person?" who can be the secretary of blank? Do you really think that you're it? You think that you're the last one, that there are not thousands of people around the country who could do your job? You're a mess. Like, your situation's a mess. It's okay that it's a mess. And by the way, you're rich already, so, like, fine. And just go away. Like, it's okay to go away. I look forward to going away. I'm, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, <laughs> when, they, when they throw the first shovel of dirt, I'll go like, ah, it's cooling. <laughs> ah, it's cooling. But so, um, all right, so the thing I thought was most fascinating about this Walker thing, and I I promise we'll get off of it, but there was an explosion of, of sort of MAGA voices, Trump aligned voices who wanted to say that this was all Mitch McConnell's doing. What? Yeah. And, um, that's a good one. And well, but that's the thing. It's like, so Mitch McConnell and David French, and I'm sure there are a few others, but like, I have no problem with people disagreeing with Mitch McConnell or criticizing Mitch McConnell. I have no problem with people disagreeing with or criticizing David French, but the, there's something about those two guys that 
illuminate brokenness inside of the people who accuse them of being, you know, monsters or broken or whatever. And I find it, I, I find the MAGA upset, like it's funny. Mitch McConnell is legitimately, I think, um, what was that movie? The Last King of Scotland. He is the last establishmentarianism, right? And uh, him and Pelosi, him and Pelosi. Yeah, fair. On the right, right? And so like all of the arguments we've been hearing, populist arguments we've been hearing for 15, 10 years about how the establishment is forcing us to do this, establishment, they've now been concentrated like a lump of coal in Superman's hand into a diamond in the form of <laughs> Mitch McConnell. And he is now the, 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 the anthropomorphization, the incarnation, the apotheosis of all establishment conspiracy theories within the Republican Party. And fortunately, and fortunately he's cool with that for him. Yeah, fortunately I mean, like, for him. He he's wears like, it well. Um, yeah. But like, can we just sort of, can we agree that Mitch McConnell wants to be majority leader? And that, that's like 90% of why he does anything? I, I uh, am I'm going to betray some confidences uh, in the story I'm about to tell you. But uh, uh, Don Stewart Stu, who uh, was uh, McConnell's communications director, I don't think he will uh, object to me saying the following. And if he does, I apologize. And uh, next center is on me. But uh, once told a reporter, are you asking me how the majority leader feels about something? <laughs> 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 Which is like, I, I don't know how, I don't know Mitch McConnell. I, I don't know him. Uh, and I don't know how he feels about stuff, except for the fact that he really likes uh, uh, University of Louisville. Mm -hmm. But he is true to himself. He is exactly what he, what he says he is, which is the person who wants the Republicans to control the United States Senate. Right. And he wants to be in charge of those Republicans. Yeah, that's it. And, and, he, and he knows that when he is gone, that, and or I assume he knows, I certainly know that whoever comes after him will not be probably as strong as he is. Mm -hmm. And I say this with uh, respect for John Cornyn. I say it with respect for John Thune. Uh, much like when Boehner, got, when Boehner went, uh, après moi, the deluge, like there will, be a, there will be a wild falling out among Republicans when McConnell is gone. And I love that the Trump people are so angry at McConnell because what is Donald Trump's greatest achievement of his presidency? The Supreme Court and the federal judiciary, by far. It's Putting those close. three traitors on the Supreme Court who denied him his uh, overturning of the election. When you, talk <laughs> to, when you talk to nationalists and you say, well, like, okay, so what's it about? The court... And the federal judiciary is very high on the list. Who did that? Oh, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell yeah. did that. Mitch McConnell did that. Mitch McConnell and Thune and Cornyn and a bunch of these Republican senators did this, and they made it happen. And the fact that they vituperate McConnell as some sort of a traitor, I will promise you this, that if Mitch McConnell had gotten to pick the nominees in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Ohio, and, and uh, Arizona, the Republicans would be looking at a R plus, they, they'd be looking at a 53 or 54 seat majority in the Senate because it's a good Republican year and it should be easy. All right, so let's, 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 uh, let's widen out the lens, as they say in some mm, forms of 
Japanese sumo porn. <laughs> um, and we're back. And we're back. Yeah. Tight shots don't work in sumo porn. Um, um, you almost made me spit my coke out. I just want the I want the podcast to record that I almost did a spit take. Um, okay, thank you. Uh, six weeks ago, it felt like there was a real vibe shift, a term I'm now just simply going to use without being embarrassed about it anymore, uh, for the Democrats. And then about two weeks ago, it felt like the vibe shift had switched back to the Republicans. And it now feels like maybe not like it's a little silly to talk about red tsunami now, right? Because the, the Senate's certainly in doubt and the idea that Republicans are going to go much better than the historical average in the house seems a little far-fetched, but Republicans are going to take the house. Yes. Well, if the Republicans fail to take the house, it will be, uh, and I, uh, would refer everyone to the great work of our AEI colleague, uh, Sean Trendy, uh, and his climate piece that he most recently wrote. Uh, and I agree with it uh, completely and love it because it agrees with me. So therefore, it is wonderful. Uh, but basically, it's a good Republican year. The Republicans are going to win the House. Uh, the Republicans only need five seats to win the House. The historical average since 1982 is 28 seats for a president's first midterm. That's normal. Joe Biden has surged in popularity only to be unpopular, right? right? Like uh, nearly unpopular. Exactly. He has basically caught up to his party's overall popularity in the low 40s. Um, when you look at Texas, when you look at California, you look at New Jersey, you look at Pennsylvania, there's just a bunch of seats out there that Republicans are going to win. There's just a bunch of seats that Republicans are going to win. And if Republicans fail to take the House, um, well, maybe I'll put it this way. If Republicans fail to take the House uh, and they still entertain Donald Trump as a human, uh, as an idea, then it's a sickness. Like, it's beyond just a weirdness and it's become a real sickness. Um, but I, I think they'll take the House and I think that they'll, I think my current number is 15 plus 15, which gives them a majority about the size that Democrats do now. I think it's more likely that Republicans end up taking the Senate by one, I think they probably end up trading a seat, Pennsylvania for Nevada. Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto is in serious trouble and Nevada for a lot of reasons. So I like maybe they just maybe they just trade one and it stays the same. But I think that the R's will probably pick up one someplace else. I don't know where it is, but that's how it is when you have a good year. Uh, you win the ones that you don't expect. Uh, Herschel Walker. Woof. Uh, if, well, I'll put it this way. If the Republicans do not have the Senate majority next year, they will get to blame Donald Trump and Georgia yet again. They will get to one, one more time say, ah, it was Trump and it was Georgia because that's such a free seat. That's such a winnable seat. Raphael Warnock is just such a bad incumbent. Uh, there's no excuse for Republicans not winning that seat. So, we're, you know, I, I'm... I was out early on this argument, which is now conventional wisdom, as, as most of the brilliant insights I come up with eventually become. Earl's comma um, swine. That Dobbs was helpful to Democrats. I mean, fundraising, definitely helpful to Democrats. But helpful to Democrats in terms of actual votes, less because 
of the abortion backlash, but because, you know, the, there's that thermostatic tendency where it's the reason why it's the party out of power does well in midterms in the first term of a president is like one of the last iron, not iron, but like very strong oak rules of uh, American <laughs> politics. I mean, since 1862, it's only happened three times where a party out of power didn't. We like divided government. We like divided yeah, and it's and it's and the whole point. My whole argument was is that the reason why this is such a strong correlation is that when you're the party out of power, you get to be all things to all people. You're in the backseat driver. You get to say, if I were driving, we wouldn't be going this direction and yada, yada, yada. And the Dobbs thing all of a sudden made it feel like, wait a second, Republicans are actually kind of in the driver's seat here and they're making changes and it. It allow it opened a window along with Trump's Mar-a-Lago stuff to, uh, make the election more of a choice than just a referendum on, on Biden. So I, I still believe that's true, but it feels like things are snapping back a little bit. What, do, do you, do you see much of the, the sort of abortion rights wave that virtually every television show in the mainstream media insisted was going to be the immediate result of this? People, uh, people who care about uh, the FBI's visit uh, or raid or uh, how, however we're, however one uh, phrases uh, what happened uh, at the former president's country club in Florida, uh, people who care about that are not persuadable voters. People who know about that, in fact, are not persuadable voters. People who know about Letitia James's lawsuit against Donald Trump are not persuadable voters. So basically, there's, uh, these are the thirds of American political life. People who will never vote for Democrats, people who ne will never vote for Republicans, and people who are somewhere between the two. Uh, it doesn't make them, they're, a lot of them are not independents. Uh, a lot of them are registered uh, with one party or the other or affiliate with one party or the other. But they will sometimes, Democrats who will sometimes vote for a Republican and Republicans who will sometimes vote for a Democrat, and then you squeeze into the middle where it's genuine toss-ups, right? And these are the unicorns because they're likely voters who are not highly opinionated, right? They're likely voters who are uh, persuadable. And these people are the ones that we spend hundreds of billions of dollars every election cycle to say, like, if I could find an issue, I know you're going to vote. I could find an issue that would just move you this way or that way just a little bit. Um, we're headed for another super high turnout election. We've had the two highest turnout elections in American history uh, in 2018 and 2020, which is bad news. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, the, the higher the turnout, the worse the country. Uh, if, if you feel like you really, really have to go, and I'd say this with love, and as a person who has devoted my entire professional life to electoral politics, if you really care about the 2022 midterm elections, like reassess, <laughs> like, re, like re, reassess your choices. I do. I'm paid to do it. This is my job. But if you really do, like, come on. So we are, ex, we are in a excruciatingly high turnout phase. And I think that the political climate looks substantially like it does in 2020, which is to say that the Republicans are going to do pretty well in the House. Uh, 
they're going to win seats in the House. And on the Senate level, you know, they, they could have won. They could have won it all easily. And they won't because Democrats are just really tuned up. When you look at the results of the Kansas referendum on abortion, there were 220,000 people who showed up to vote in Kansas who were not registered in either party and they came out to vote in a primary. That's weird, right? That's like totally out of a third of the, a third of the electorate in the Kansas primary for people who were not affiliated with either party. That's super weird. So there is definitely a turnout factor on abortion for Democrats. For Republicans, there is also this, that a lot of the people who say, well, I don't know. There's a lot, I, I put it this way, there's a lot of Yunkin voters out there. There's a lot of Republicans. There's a lot of those persuadable voters who say, well, I'm definitely going to vote, but I'm not sure about the Republicans because this guy's pretty gross, or I don't like Donald Trump or whatever. And then they're going to get it. Like, why is Greg Abbott going to crush Beto O'Rourke? Because they may not like the Trump stuff and they may not like whatever, but the people who live in the suburbs of Dallas and Houston and San Antonio and Austin are going to say, lower taxes, I'm uh, basically, I'm, I'm more conservative than I am liberal and I'm going to do it. And those two forces will work against each other and we'll see where it lands. So uh, this is a question I should probably have a Democrat on here to ask this question of, but I'll ask it of them too, because it's my podcast. <laughs> like what what is your i mean like i i think if uh, if i were speaking on a college campus and a kid asked me this question i could come up with an answer to it but there are a lot of these things where it just it still is weird and um so beto o'rourke you know is somewhere between the kind of guy who runs a used bookstore and yells at you for your bad book choices and um and like a presbyterian youth minister who actually wants to go easy 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 who wants to go on dancing dances with the stars or something right he just he has a vibe that makes me feel unsafe and that makes people feel um <laughs> and that he is he, he is determined to prove how much he cares more about you do about the things he thinks you don't care enough about, you know, and white supremacy. And he's, he's a, he's a left wing guy. Right. And he, he wears it on his sleeve. Why does the, De the democratic party of Texas need to nominate a Beto O'Rourke when they could have, is it, are, are the incentives such throughout, even in the state of Texas that finding, I don't know, some, Lloyd Benson, Sam Nunn type oh, is, is entirely impossible, right? I mean, like you would think oh. just in terms of just raw political ambition and those kinds of incentives, the kind of attention that a moderate Democrat who actually picks some fights with his own base, right? A Joe Manchin for Texas. Why is, why, like, why can't, why is there no Rahm Emanuel going around saying, why don't we find Democrats who could be actually competitive in this state? Why does that ha happen so little anymore? I have my answers, but like, what is your basic answer? To that? Well, um, my colleague Leland Vitterge asked uh, the question of Beto O'Rourke after the debate, whatever night that was last week, uh, time is a flat circle, 
Uh, which better work is running this time? Is it the guy who drove to Washington with Will Hurd? Talking about bipartisanship. Is it the guy who ran against Ted Cruz in 2018? Is it the take your AR-15 running for the Democratic nomination? Or this guy, which, which better work is this version? And it was a good question. Um, I, I think there is a, why did California Republicans nominate um, Larry Elder to be their right? Right, okay. So when you're a, when you're a minority party, you are um, beholden to kooks, uh, kookism. Because they're the ones who show up to the meetings. They're the ones who show up to the, and they're the people who show up at the primaries, right? Yeah. And at whatever time I'm allowed to, I will uh, uh, denounce America's primary electoral system uh, at length. But that's that's what you get, right? And the the more of a minority party you are, the worse your. So Texas is not that Republican, but it is inelastically Republican. Texas and Minnesota are very much alike, which is there's. Minnesota is not that democratic. As a matter of fact, within the next decade or certainly the next 20 years, Minnesota will be a Republican state. It will flip over. It will get, it's getting older and whiter. And as it gets older and whiter, it will be more Republican. Uh, Texas and Minnesota are alike, though, that they're not that much the way that they are, but they're, there's no elasticity. Uh, Georgia, Arizona, uh, Tennessee has a surprising amount of elasticity. But we care a lot about elasticity in these states, which is how much variation is there potentially in your vote? And Texas just doesn't have that much variation in its vote. Uh, uh, Ted Cruz and his victory over Beto O'Rourke was impressive in one way, which is that he relied on people not born in Texas to deliver a victory for him in 2018. He relied on people outside of Texas to deliver it for him. Uh, Republicans in Texas complain endlessly about how people from California are coming in to steal their success. But that's not the story of what's happening in Texas. What's happening in Texas is Texas is getting younger. Texas is really successful. And it's just getting younger. They're having a lot of kids. They're being really successful. It's really good. Like what Texas is doing is really good. I was just in the Rio Grande Valley. It's like, it's booming everywhere. And as a consequence, you just have a lot of young people around. And as a consequence of having a lot of young people around, what are you? You're more democratic, right? That's why Massachusetts and New York and the Northeast is getting more Republican and will be more Republican because it's emptying out of young people. They don't have young people there and young people are liberal. And that's just, that's just a hard and fast truth of politics. Put it this way. Let's say you and I were given the power we so richly deserve um, to <laughs> fix our political system. And we didn't go full smoke fill rooms, but we basically relegated the primaries to the soiled heel of history that they deserve to be stuck to um, right and came up with some... No, it's got some democratic features. I don't know, a brokered, you know, a convention model or whatever, but there were actual power of the purse, long-term interests, fiduciary obligations of the parties to protect their brand and to pick 
no more Herschel Walkers, right? And all that kind of stuff. Let's say the Democratic Party simply anointed someone to be nominee um, in Texas who was, in fact, a, what was that? What's the, uh, uh, Jim, James Webb. It was Jim Webb? Jim Webb, right? James Webb. The, from, Virginia, from Virginia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of Democrat, right? You're, you know, um, um, who talks tough, little populist, um, but culturally conservative kind of thing. Would there, do you think like Republicans across the aisle for that kind of candidate? Um, and similarly, do you think like, like it's just so much harder for me to imagine the Republican Party finding actual sort of moderate, squishy, you know, liberal Republicans the way it would make sense to me for Democrats to find moderate Democrats. Maybe that's my blind spot. The, the, the better O'Rourke of 2018 would be more competitive um, and running for president was a mistake. And uh, I don't think he is a bad person. I think he means what he says. I think that's all true. Uh, I think he definitely uh, is a runner, which I don't understand, but I think that's probably true. Uh, but running for president in 2020 took him out of the good space, right? He went into the bad space in order to suck up to progressive voters who, as it turns out, there weren't that as many of them as they thought there were. And now he's back running for governor of Texas. And I'm glad he's running for governor of Texas. And he should have done that and not been running for president the first time. Um, but he took positions to seek a Democratic nomination. And I don't mean that they're insincere, but he took positions that are very hard to take back to Texas. And part of the reason that I am always talking about more local, more local, more local, more local, and that the answer, like, our worship of the presidency and our obsession over the presidency is debilitating to our republic in a lot of ways. Uh, we really harm ourselves with this idea of culture war avatars and that we're going to have somebody who will be president that will make all the good things happen and make the bad people go away. And Better Work got sucked into that. Better Work is a talented politician. And I don't know, if you're a Democrat, he might make a great governor of Texas. I don't know. But he had to run for president. He, remember that picture of him on Vanity Fair with the sad dog? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That dog was so sad. And the dog was right to be sad. <laughs> the dog was right to be sad. That was not a good idea, right? Like this, the whole, the whole thing wasn't a good idea. But Democrats have a whole thing. And Barack Obama and uh, John Kennedy are uh, proof of concept, which is they want to find a young person who is uh, ideological and who sounds right and makes them feel good. And then they can go on the journey with them. And he fell victim to that. But more broadly, we basically live in a parliamentary system. We live in a, we have a parliamentary system electorate without a parliamentary system system, right? I mean, people now vote. The, the number of states where the vote for Senate and House versus president, you know, people vote unified ticket now more and more everywhere, right? Um, I'm just trying to figure out a way to break that because I think that's sort of part of the problem. Like Herschel Walker 
it's a complicated life, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, the Republican Party that now says they don't care about him paying for the abortion, they don't care about his, we have, we've now pluralized love child because of this guy, right? It's now love children. Yep, yep, yep. Um, um, like, the idea that you have to vote, like, I don't, it is a dangerous place to be. I, I hate all popular front politics, right? The idea that you have to vote for, for Mastriano, right? Nah, or, can you imagine? Or Walker, or, or for that matter, you know, Cory Bush or whoever. I mean, my whole point is, is like the binary choice thing, I think, is the fundamental problem with our politics. And there's an, ex- there's an excuse for voting for Herschel Walker. I don't think there's any excuse for voting for Doug Mastriano. No, I think that's fair. I, I, that's fair. Like the Senate matters in a different way than a governor matters and it's yada, 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 it, yada. It, it, it affects things differently. But yes, I, look, I learned uh, what fascism means from this podcast. This is the podcast where I learned what, fa- what no, actually I learned it uh, from uh, Suicide of the West. Um, I, the idea of people pulling together, right, that we just all have to agree that we have to put aside all things to be in this space is ridiculous, right? Um, it's a preposterous idea that somehow there is, and look, I, I don't want to take it into religion, um, but my faith in God fills up a space that other things can't come into, right? My, fa- my favorite story, <laughs> my favorite story of the Old Testament is, uh, Moses goes up to receive the law and he's like, okay, look, Aaron, for real, I got to go up. I got to get the law. No worshiping the golden calf. And Aaron's like, totally. We're good. <laughs> we're, we're done with the calf. No, no, no one's even talking. People are, people are saying that they don't even care about the calf anymore. So he goes up. And of course we know the Mel Brooks version is the best. I give you the 15. I give you the 10 commandments and he comes down. And even before he can come back, to the camp, they have already melted down all of their jewelry to worship Baal. They've already done it. And that's how we are. That's why Thomas Jefferson wanted the symbol of the United States to be the children of Israel, because we're, we're always wandering away. And putting politics where religion should be, putting politics where your family should be, putting politics where that stuff should be, is a not just a simulacrum, it's poison, right? Uh, it's a poison to other things because, and I, I say this advisedly, who cares, right? The point of a republic is that we get two years off in between the elections. We get two years off. Mr. Madison's machine is really beautiful because I get two years off. I live in the District of Columbia, so it doesn't matter. But people who live in swing states get two years off and now they have to choose again. And then two years from now, they'll have to do it again. But what a better way to do that than thinking about it all the time. Hashtag never tweet. So you reminded me of the, and I had to go look up who he played in the Ten Commandments. The character played by Edward G. Robinson. Oh, who man. Is just, nice. just fan, like, is, of the great villains of all time. Yes, plays Dathan, Dathan. I don't know how you pronounce it from the old, and like we were on the eve of Yom Kippur, so I, I got a tread lightly, counselor. Thank, but, th- th- thanks for your weak Judaism. Um, but uh, um, I always thought that that was like among the weirdest casting. Um, uh, well, it's, 
Because I always saw him as like either a mobster or a cop or Chief Wiggum. And like <laughs> have him like dressed up in his <laughs> in his like, you know, Israelite with the robes. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. kind of weird, you know. Um, um yeah, look, look, I, I, I agree, but like with the 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 problem with the cult of unity and and we're all have to all be in it together kind of stuff. I don't I don't I don't think I I I feel certain that when my great grandfather voted for um oh why am I drawing a blank uh in 1856 uh why am I trying to, uh, John C. Fremont. Mm-hmm. I feel right. strongly that when my first Republican candidate. Yes, I feel strongly when uh, James Steyerwalt voted for John C. Fremont that he did not feel that he was entering into a suicide pact <laughs> with, <laughs> with everyone else who had voted for him. And I think he voted for John C. Fremont for a bunch of obvious reasons that were related to slavery and economic liberty and whatever. And cousin marriage, and I, you know, which is, a, well, that's hey, hey, Shelbyville hey, versus Springfield. Hey, 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 <laughs> again, Apple, you're talking to an Appalachian American. Let's just slow down <laughs> with that loose talk. But I, I don't think that's what he thought. And I also don't think, by the way, that when my grandfather voted for FDR in 32, which he rude until the day he yeah, died, that's a tough one. which he rude until the day he died. And I don't think that when my father voted for Ross Perot in 92, that these were blood packs, right? These are not blood packs. These are just votes. We vote sometimes. We just have to vote. As Americans, we just have to vote sometimes. And we should lighten up, Francis. Like we should, there sh- we should lighten up about this stuff and go vote and do this stuff. And sometimes your team wins and sometimes the other team wins and it's okay. And then we'll be back. You have talked about it before and it's really important. Both parties delegitimize the other party, right? The essential work of both of these parties now is to delegitimize the majorities of the other. That if the other wins, that it's not a legitimate majority. That if these people have won, it is because they have suppressed the vote. And if these people have won, they have stolen the vote. That's poison, right? What you are supposed to say, I, I obsess about this, um, but in uh, before JFK was assassinated, he and Barry Goldwater had agreed. Everybody knew that Goldwater was going to be the nominee. And he and uh, Goldwater had agreed that they would travel the country together with their families on a plane and, and have debates. They would go around the country and do this together and have debates. I don't think that Barry Goldwater thought that if John Kennedy got reelected in 1964, that the country would end. And I don't think that John Kennedy thought that if Barry Goldwater had gotten elected in 1964, that the country would end. And the apocalyptic tone and presence in our politics. Again, this is what I do. Like, this is my favorite thing. This horse race politics BS is like my jam. And when I see people making a religion out of it, it's really disquieting. It's really wrong. They should not. Yeah, so it's funny. Um, at the beginning, when we were still talking about the book tour stuff, I was going to ask you whether you got a question that you hadn't heard before that kind of surprised you that took you off guard. And I'll let you think about that for a second because maybe you didn't, but whatever. Um, Because the one I wanted to bring up actually came, and this is a shout out to regular listener, 
uh, Kevin Holtzberry's daughter, this friend of mine, who, we were in Ohio and at a book event and his like 12 year old daughter who I'm going to be working for or dead by her hand when she grows up, very impressive little girl. She says, she responds to something I had said where I'd said, you know, I sort of name checked Yasha Monk and these various studies that they do and how partisan identity is now a better predictor of behavior and attitudes than uh, race, gender, or ethnicity and how screwed up that is and how like novel that is in political science. And she gets up and she does this emperor, damn kid points out the emperor has no clothes question where she says, isn't that better? Wouldn't you rather live in a country where people judged you by like the political groups you joined rather than like simply because you were born of a different race? And it kind of like knocked me back on my heels. It was just a really great question. And I've had to sort of, you know, grapple with it and think about it. And the reason why it's, it's a great question is because it's that partisan identity is now like an ethnicity or a religion, right? It is not... This is not an improvement. It is a degrading of... We can, we can, we can control for... It, it, so we can take the survey data and we can control for everything and get the same answers. Uh, partisanship is uh, filling in for so much of the other stuff, right? Uh, one of the best things about white people in America was that for a long time they didn't think of themselves as white or different. Uh, one of the secrets uh, to American success is that white people did not say, I see myself as white and therefore different from other people. Um, white, so the, this is the tragedy the of identity politics. Is it's, and and exactly. Sherry Berman and Jonathan Haidt, other people have written about this. It creates, creating, creating well, by demonizing white people as an identity, you create white identity, and that's not good for anybody. Identity politics ultimately succeeded. And what it succeeded in doing was to get white people to be a lot more Republican. Yeah. Uh, and Rui Teixeira, our colleague, uh, as he points out, so the emerging Democratic majority takes place when you have static levels. So the, here's a, a very uh, coarse way of putting it. In the old days, if you had told me what the white percentage of the electorate was, I could always tell you who was going to win in the quadrennial year. No problem, right? Is it 69, 70% white? Democrats win. Uh, is it 72, 73% white? Republicans win. Uh, white people are a lot more Republican. But now they're a lot, a lot more Republican. And what the premise of Rui and John Judas's book in 2003 was, was that basically the uh, Republican share of the white vote was static that there were this many white liberals and there were this many white conservatives and that this was basically, this is where it was. One of the big things that's different is that whiteness and Republicanism have become really closely aligned, right? Uh, uh, again, white people were always more Republican than Democratic, but it's gotten, and I, I'm sorry, I don't know what the numbers are, but the, cor the, the correlation, the connection is unhealthy. and. I really, the, the best things that are happening, so there's like candidates in, uh, there's a guy in Virginia, Hung Kao. Uh, there are candidates around the country that are um, not non-white, 
Republican candidates who, by the way, tend to be not nationalistic, but conservative, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. These candidates tend not to be, when we look in California, we see them, we look in Texas, we look in South Florida, we see them. They're not nationalistic. They tend to be conservative. And the Republican Party desperately needs these people because there is a thing that will happen if the Republicans don't change course, which is eventually the story of the emerging Democratic majority will be true, which is that mo almost all the whites will be Republican and there will not be enough whites anymore for the Republicans to win national elections. And that's a... That's a, that's a bad story for the future of the country. And not only is it a bad story for the future of the country because we lack uh, political competition, but it's a bad story for the future of the country because the shape of that Republican Party will be awful, mm -hmm. right? That, that's, that's a Republican Party that is really bad for the country. Yeah, and it, does, it doesn't need to be this way. I mean, we can go back and we can look at that picture from the South Carolina primary in 2016 of Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Trey Gowdy, and Marco Rubio. And you're like, that looks like the, the future of a pretty good party. And um, yeah, people made different choices. And I should say, and then I will shut up. Uh, I should say that what happens, um, people ask me all the time, what happens next? And people ask me all the time, are you going to eat your fat? Um, but that's a different <laughs> question. No, 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 no one ever asked me that because I will. Uh, but People ask me all the time, what happens next? And the answer is, we get to choose, right? We get to choose. Um, I have had too often the opportunity to quote Lincoln at the Young Men's Lyceum, right? Uh, we will either endure for all time as a nation of free men or die by suicide. And as I get to tell people all the time, tragically, these are still the options. There are not new options. There are not different options. And either it will work or it won't work. Either we will do this or we won't do this. And my exhortation to Americans, oh, oh here, let me Tevi Troy you. And the point of broken news available <laughs> at great booksellers near you. No, but is seriously, we have to pick. Like, this is an inside job. No one is coming to make us be better. No one's coming to force us to do this better. No one's forcing us to make a better politics. There are not market forces that will determine that this is right. This is a soul choice. This is a heart choice. This is a thing that we pick. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I, I regret the title suicide of the West, but the, the suicide part was the point. There was, there's a choice like suicide's a choice. And I'm not trying to make light of people with mental, you know, issues and all that, anything like that. But like, you know, it was sort of a, a little bit of a callback to Charles Cradhammer's point about decline as a choice. And, yes. um, you can, you know, I mean, it's weird. I, I have lots of criticism of Scent of a Woman, the movie. Not, not the Scent of Women, the movie right, Scent go, of a Woman. Let's go, let's go, let's go. I'm ready, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to fight. But, well, mostly because Al Pacino decided to go back to overacting school. And, um, but his speech at the end, which, uh, where he talks about, I always knew what the right course was, but I didn't take it because it was too damn hard. Like, this is my great frustration with so much of American politics right now, is that, the overwhelming majority of people, I think, in both the Democratic and Republican Party, know what the, the basic right choice is for our politics. They just don't have the, the pardon my French, the balls to actually make the hard. Mark, Mark, Leib Mark Leibovich, uh, his new book uh, in his previous book speaks to this, which is, they're in on the joke. 
right? Uh, well, we know, I know. Like, um, who should be the, the Liz Truss's experience in the UK? Dear Kevin McCarthy, get ready. Get, get ready for the humiliations. Get, get ready for the series of humiliations that you will suffer at the hands of these people who you so desperately wanted to lead. And like, I guess one of, one of the things that is most important in adult life is being willing to lose and being willing to get fired and being willing to like eat it, right? Sometimes you just eat it. Like it, it's not great, yeah. but for the good of the country, for what, like the, the single most disturbing thing, there is so much um, democracy uh, anxiety, fake democracy anxiety in the mainstream press and among Democrats and Biden's terrible speech uh, in Philadelphia and all of that stuff. But what's the big problem in the Republican Party today? Not accepting outcomes of elections. That's the big problem. What's the most important election? The next election. That's what the most important election is. Because if you lost this one, we get to come back and have another election next time. So relax and we'll come back next time and we'll try it again. And we'll see if it doesn't work better this time. But these um, annihilation, uh, uh, the, the eschatology of American politics today is, a, it's, it's not sustainable. Yeah, I mean, it's um, like the other day where Trump said in some rally that, that we, we will never have another fair election again. Like, I keep trying to like figure out the right analogy for this, but it's sort of like, like, like I, I think the party we we're we going around the horn a million times. The party should be stronger. Weak parties, strong partisanship. Yeah, all that kind of stuff, right? We believe on all that. But like the investment, the 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 long term reliance interest, to use a legal term, for the Democratic Republican, for the Republican and Democratic Party to have people believe that elections work, um, and are fair, is it's like it's like binding. Burger King, Chick-fil-A, and McDonald's together as a united front against the forces of veganism, right? I mean, like, the whole, none of this works if people don't think elections are fair, right, and, and aren't real. And yet both parties, whether it's Stacey Abrams, I mean, look, Republican Party's worse. There's asymmetry here. Republican Party's worse because Trump is worse. But, like, the Democratic Party has been going on about, the, about, about voter suppression and all this stuff for a very long time. Republican Party has been obsessed with voter fraud stuff for a very long time, but now they're in overdrive. And if the Republican parties were actually, if the Republican Democratic Party were actually run by somebody who put the long-term interests of party politics itself front and center, they would do something about this. But the, there's no incentive structure for it. Because you've given me such a generous opportunity to talk about the primary system, I'll be brief. Uh, I will. I will not go. I will not have the next twenty-minute harangue about the uh, uh, part of the way that we, the way that these parties choose nominees. But I will just point out again that the Democratic nominee for president in 1968 won zero primaries. Primaries are new. Primaries are bad, and primaries have terrible incentive structures. It's a forty-five-year uh, experiment that has failed wildly. Wildly. It has failed wildly. There was a, uh, a great piece in the New York Times talking about uh, gerrymandering. And 
David Leonhardt is the person who I most often go, oh, that's good. Then I'm like, oh, you're so wrong. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh. <laughs> like he, he's, he is like, I got it. And then misses. And what he didn't point out in this great piece was what's wrong with the primary system? Bad candidates. That's what's wrong with the primary system. Our primary system produces terrible candidates that are not useful and not good for the Republic. That's true, right? I resent both of these parties and the way that they choose these nominees because the way that they choose these nominees is bad for the country. I don't care. I don't care how you vote. Everybody ought to vote however they want. I could care less. Again, District of Columbia resident, fine. But the way that these primaries are arranged provides the worst kind of incentive structure for these people to pander. And like, I find um, Ron DeSantis so fascinating because he is Trump on purpose, right? So he says, okay, so I need to do this much culture war stuff to hide the stuff that I'm doing in Florida. I was talking for a guy, I was talking to a guy who, well, whatever, person who knows. And I said, well, are you like, how do you feel about DeSantis? And he says, actually, I got to say, been really successful in what he's done on schools, what he's done uh, on tech. Like, it's really impressive. And the way he gets away with it is boob bait for Bubba's. Mm-hmm. And our primary system basically says to a guy like Ron DeSantis, okay, how do I cheat this system? And the way I cheat the system is by stoking culture wars and creating um, anger between people to scam my way through this. Those are the wrong incentives. So, like, uh, you say you're against smoke-filled rooms. I am for the smoke-filled rooms. Please bring yeah, back no, smoke Yeah, no, look, I, I would be really happy with them. I'm just thinking about in the realm of the possible, of, like, like you need to at least have some semblance of more of a, of a democratic mechanism to something to get people to accept the reform. But I'd be okay with the smoke-filled room. I mean, I'd absolutely would and, be. And, 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 and we are going through a phase where people are trying out, as we've seen in Alaska, as we've seen in Maine, as we've seen in a bunch of places. People are trying out now the possibility of what about ranked choice? What about uh, first pass? Like, there, there are, people are trying. And I, I do think that we are in an era much like uh, the mid-1970s where we're having to reassess our political norms and how we do them, thank God. Yeah, I just, at, at the at the... I agree. There are some people who are trying, but um, they tend not to be the people really in charge of anything. <laughs> um, and remember when Homer runs for sanitation commissioner in The Simpsons? And we're picking up where our do- our dogs are pooping in our own, and we're cleaning it up after them. Right? He says, "People, there are dogs going to the bathroom in our own homes, and we have to pick it up. Did we lose a war or something?" And, but his, the motto for his campaign was let someone else do it. And that is, should be, should be the GOP. That should be Trump 2024. Yeah. It's Trump 2024. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's going back to the tea partier with the sign that said government, keep your hands off my Medicare. There is this, this weird populism that demands everything else give way to what they want without expecting anything from the people making any demands. And it's been internalized. But this this goes to the thing about uh, ethnicity and vote share, which is 
Democrats succeeded in making their party the party of not white people. Though they rely heavily on white votes, I would just point out Democrats. Uh, so if we get into a space where people say, it, no, it's so what Donald Trump basically succeeded in doing was saying to the 70% of the electorate that is white, I'll be your guy. I'm a bad guy, but I'll be a bad guy for you. This is Jesse Jackson for white people, in a way. Yep. I'll, yep. I'll be, I'm a bad guy, but I'll be a bad guy for you. I'll take for you. I'll do for you. And, you know, David Frum wrote a piece for The Atlantic a long time ago uh, that said that if, um, if I forget, if, if only fascists will enforce immigration laws, Americans will eventually ex- uh, elect fascists to do it. And we are the, the crisis, to use an overused term, but the crisis in American political life today is for Republicans to calm down and for white voters to quit thinking of themselves as uh, an afflicted minority or in some trouble, but instead to say, the country's doing really well, right? Like both, part, the, the alarming thing in my politics today is that I live in, you've heard me say this many times before, the single most radical statement I can make in public life in many circles today is that I am alive at the best place at the best time in human history. And neither of my parties say that, right? Neither of the parties in this country say that. And what they both say is that we are on the looming cliff of disaster and decline, and it's a catastrophe. And where it, like, FDR, one of America's worst presidents. But you know what FDR had? He said, here we go, boys. Like, let's go do, like, this is going to be good. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. America's great. This is a great country. Where is that kind of aspirational patriotism in either of these parties? Because I don't hear it. No, I, look, I agree. It's uh, Arumph. 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 We can go. I didn't get Arumph out of that guy. And I'm totally with you on the DeSantis thing. I was saying this to some people over at CNN the other day. Um, that the DeSantis we're seeing in dealing with the hurricane is the actual real DeSantis. Because yeah. all of the media, mainstream media assumptions are think, oh, he's this culture-warring demagogue. Because no. that's what they pay attention to. But the reality is, right. he's actually kind of, uh, and this is not, like, and it's funny. People think this is like this profound defense. Um, when in fact, it, you could see it as actually a very cynical indictment of the guy. Because, he knows better, right? And he, but he feels like he's got to do this stuff. But I think he approaches culture war stuff from almost like a Mitch Daniels kind of wonkery. And he takes these positions because he studies them. And he says, oh, you know what would play really well if I did this to Disney? Um, and it's kind think, of brilliant. I think, I think he's, it's, I think he's, le- I think he's less ethical than Mitch Daniels. Yeah. yeah. I'm just talking about intellectual focus no, on no, no, the no. wonkishness part. No, yeah, yeah. 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 But, uh, I think that the Ron DeSantis, do you know what he did when he was in the Navy, when he was in Iraq, mm. his job was to give briefings to troops going out to kill people and break things about what the rules of engagement were. So he was a proactive, uh, JAG lawyer. So he would be in a room with these guys, and I recommend very, very highly uh, oh, the piece in the New Yorker, Dexter Filkin's amazing write-up of DeSantis. And his job was to go in the room with these guys, these Marines who were getting ready to go out and 
do the stuff, right? Like the scary stuff. And I'm sure David French could speak to some of this and say, okay, here's what we're allowed to do tonight. You can kick in some of these doors, but not those doors. And you can do this and you can do the other thing. And here's how you're going to like get through. Here's how you're going to come home alive tonight. And when I think about DeSantis, who is, has a dead-eyed cold fish weirdness about him that is <laughs> deeply off-putting. But I always think about that, that there was a guy who was in a room with Marines in the Anbar province who said, okay, guys, here's how we're going to not die tonight and do that. And uh, I think the, the, the reason that Donald Trump rightly, deeply fears Ron DeSantis is that Ron DeSantis is that guy. I think that's the reason that Donald Trump, when people talk about, oh, and I do think that the right way to think of Donald Trump in 2024 is as the front runner for the Republican nomination, whether he's declared or not declared, I don't think that matters. I think he's effectively running. Um, but when Donald Trump at four in the morning is pacing around, thinking of who is awake that he could call on the phone to bother, the reason that Ron DeSantis gives him problems is that Ron DeSantis, just as you say, is able to order his passions right. in that way, in a very intentional, ordered fashion, where it's like, well, if what we have to do is have a big fight with the Walt Disney Company over a, like, or, or Florida's incredibly stupid social media bill, yeah. where it's like, fine, if I, if I do that, but I get to have more school choice, done. No, that's right. I mean, in a weird way, and I, I feel guilty even making the comparison, because I, I think you're right. Like Mitch Daniels is a more uh, ethical dude. But oh, I wish I wish I wish I lived in a country virtuous enough to have Mitch Daniels as its president. But uh, George H. W. Bush running in, two, in 1988, he did all sorts of stuff you knew he didn't like doing about the pledge and about the ACLU and all of that. And that was a deviation from the actual incredibly decent, honorable man who understood that politics sometimes was ugly and gross and you have to do ugly and gross things. And I think DeSantis is much more like that. And I think that there are a lot of, um, a lot of people on the right and the left. I mean, the, the weird thing about our politics today is so many people on the right and the left see the world the same way. They just score it good or evil. Yes. Right. You yes. know, but they, they see right. the same DeSantis, they see the same Trump. Um, you know, they just think, the bugs are features and the features are bugs, depending on whether they have an R or a D after their name. But anyway. I, th I, I will um, take us back to where we started and say that all of worship, we all worship. So um, everybody, there, there, there is real atheism, uh, but we all worship something, right? We all, ch we all choose our idols. Um, and you get to pick. And the thing about being a grown-up is that you get to choose where you put your worship. And uh, this is, uh, why am I drawing a blank on his name? The, uh, his commencement address was, this is water. Uh, he is a great novelist who took his life by his own hand. Oh. I, don't know why, yeah. I don't know why I can't remember his name right now, but I'm sorry. But his, uh, I would recommend everyone to look up his speech. It was a, a commencement address, Kenyan, college in like 2003 or 2004, everyone worships, right? But the thing about being an adult is we get to pick, we get to choose. And politics creeps into that space too easily, right? 
it is only too easy that politics creeps into the space where rightful worship belongs. I understand that most people, or a lot of people, don't think that uh, a Nazarene uh, son of a day laborer is the son of God. I got it. Like, <laughs> I, do, I, 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 get, I get why that is a push for some people. But I also know that uh, worshiping uh, the God of Abraham is an important starting place for the ordering of my passions. If you allow, when we saw in 2016, the number of people who identified themselves as evangelicals who didn't go to church and the rise of those individuals, um, that's politics where God's supposed to be. And you don't, have to, you don't have to worship God. You don't have to believe what I believe. But you should at least know that politics is a bad replacement for this stuff. And with that, <laughs> caution against immunizing the eschaton, uh, we shall call it a day. Christopher Starwell, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'll pick up my gold jacket later on. Okay, so uh, Brother Starwalt has left the uh, studio, and um, it was good to catch up with him. I sound, I'm sorry if I sound melancholy. I'm a little under the weather. It's been a, it was a long, complicated weekend for a bunch of reasons. And uh, just so people know, because tomorrow is Yom Kippur, I'm not going to be recording uh, The Remnant. Um, I will figure it out. Either we'll be a day late and we'll have a guest, you know, later in the week, or we will um, have someone substitute for me, or I'll just do in a particularly long, self-indulgent um, solo remnant at the end of the week. Um, but just so you know, that's the situation. And I know I am not the, the most observant Jew in the world, but I, I try to obey some of the forms. Um, and other than that, if you're interested in coming to the Naples thing and you can swing it financially, that would be awesome. It's starting to shape up into something um, real and kind of special. Um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And um, um, I got to hop now and go deal with a whole bunch of things and um, try and write a G file before sundown. So there's that too. Uh, so, uh, thanks for listening and I will see you next time. We have looked into it and no, you will not because this is a podcast. Some of the best porn is about getting more than you bargained for. So I, I guess, we, are we actually recording it, Dom? I guess we're recording. Look at that. Okay.